This podcast is part of the Podbelly Network. Please visit podbelly.com to see a complete listing of all of our other shows. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mix in just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. Hey guys, and welcome to episode 232 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. I'm Jerry. And I'm Tracy. Tracy. Jerry. So we've got a really cool story tonight, and we've got uh, a, a friend of ours, Carrie, who we do our very first live show was at her event. Mm hmm. And, um,. She has an event every single year, and she's got some cool stories, and she shares some of them with us tonight. So after the story, and uh, we do our little Patreon stuff and our iTunes stuff, we've got uh, that interview to play you. Sounds First, we want great. to thank all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter which country you represent. Thank you to all of you for everything that you do. We appreciate you guys, and I hope you all had a Merry Christmas. I know it's tough not being at home with your family, and but I know you also have a family there. And we just appreciate you guys looking after us every single day. And you guys are just the best. And I hope everybody else out there had a great um, Christmas with their family. With that being said, it leads us right into the next thing. Like you said, it's tough being away from your family. And with the COVID, that's what so many people I know in, in Great Britain and over here, they were, mm-hmm. you know, there's still shutdowns and telling you to stay away even for families and not have your traditional Christmas. So people are doing it by Zoom and all that. And that's that's fine. You do what you got to do, but that makes it tough on a lot of people. I know mm-hmm. we, I saw a post earlier today, or actually I think it was yesterday, in the group where somebody was just saying, hey, I, I feel like nobody cares about me. I'm, I'm all alone and nobody reaches out to me. And that's an important message is that... If you know somebody may not have a lot of friends or they may not have a lot of family or whatever the situation is, reach out to them more often. Don't wait for them to reach out to you. Reach out to them. Just pick a day or pick a time and say, I need to make some calls or I need to send some texts or I need to send some messages. And you might be surprised at the person you touch that day. Oh, absolutely. That's a great thing to do, guys. So if you're feeling tough during these tough times, if you feel like you need some additional help, Tracy and I am, are always available course any time of the day you've got the group feel free to join the group and uh, like i said i know there's thousands literally thousands of people in there who are willing to help out yeah if you need an ear and they're great as freddie sneezes in the background (laughs) (laughs) and also we have the 800 number for you guys if you'd rather reach out that way it's 1-800-273-8255 or you can text them at 741-741 just remember you guys you're never alone we're always here for you all right as usual, this episode is brought to you by El Yucateco Hot Sauce, the number one habanero-based hot sauce in the United States, hashtag king of flavors, and they are in the top 10 of all hot sauce in the United States, no matter what kind of pepper they're made mm-hmm. out of. And we put that to the test this week. Oh, we sure did. We had Christmas, uh, a couple of days before Christmas, my children came over, 
my oldest son actually did a little couple of sample tests. We had some taquitos. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's an inside joke, but we did have some for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and he actually tested uh, three different flavors, mm-hmm. with, and we filmed one of them and put them up on uh, Instagram so people could kind of see what was going on. And when it was all said and done, he left with three bottles of my um, hot sauce. Yeah, he did. <laughs> I was like, hey, where did that one go? And he goes, Austin took it home. I'm like, well, what the heck? But that's okay. That's okay. We know where we can get more. Right. And if you want some, you can get your own at most major groceries, including uh, Walmart, Target, Target. Meijer. A lot of the Hispanic restaurants Mm -hmm. and uh, grocery stores had them. You can try them there. And I found out that that TV show we like, The Hot Ones, where they do the uh, the wings, the hot wings, while they have yeah, somebody in here. that's that so fun. They have, oh, you could take one there on almost every episode. Oh, my gosh. That is such a funny show to watch. It is it's a funny awesome. show, especially the one with Gordon Ramsay. That's my favorite. <laughs> but uh, anyway, if you can't find them at your local grocer, feel free to go to their website, com. You can get merchandise. You can get small little bottles of hot sauce that you can uh, clip onto your that still ring. blows my mind that that they thought of that that's or you so get a, funny. a pack that's got all seven different hot mm-hmm. sauces and uh pretty cool get it shipped to you and you can save 10 percent by using the promo code hillbilly horror check it out all right tracy so this episode i'm i'm really excited about doing and this is probably one that you know more about than other episodes that we've done because we actually watched a movie on this together mm-hmm. so really cool with this being the holiday season i thought it would be cool to do an uplifting story not that a lot of the stories aren't but this one i think really has a message and some people don't believe in divine intervention and and that's fine but i think this one might at least get you thinking about if it's not divine intervention it sure is a lot of coincidences sure it is and we've been asked several times to do stories about angels Mm-hmm. And uh, I've not really gotten around to it. I've looked into it a little bit. But this story, if you listen at least and believe the eyewitnesses, does involve angels. So you get a little bit of everything in this one. Tonight's story is the Cokesville Miracle. Had you ever heard of this story before yesterday? No, I had not. I hadn't either. Um, a couple days ago, I was researching something. And you know, like if you're on YouTube... Mm-hmm. This thing just popped up. Yeah. And I don't know what I looked at to where, but it was a, the trailer for the movie. And then mm-hmm. I watched the trailer for the movie and then I started researching it. And I was like, this is just something we got to cover because I thought it was such a cool story. So May 19th, 1986, Cokesville, Wyoming. It's around 1.30 on a Friday. David Young and his wife Doris, they walked into the Cokesville Elementary School. When they walked in, they had several different types of guns, Mm -hmm. all kinds of ammunition, and a shopping cart with a homemade bomb that was made with gasoline and some other items, including aluminum powder. They walked up to Christine Cook, who was in the office at the time, and she asked if there was something that, you know, she could do for them. David Young responded with, "Um, yes, ma'am, there certainly is. This is a revolution, and your school is being taken hostage. Consider yourself a hostage. That's what he said, all right. And this kind of freaked her out a little bit because she was the first person they came to and they took her hostage, so she had no way of warning No, anybody. she couldn't warn anybody at all. So Cokesville, just so you know, it's a very small town. There's approximately 550 people, and most of the town knew David Young. 
David had been the only police officer. He was a marshal mm-hmm. back uh, in 1979. So you're looking at, what, about eight years earlier than that. And being the only police officer in town of, you know, 500, 550 people, you're going to know who they are. And he was terminated after his six-month uh, trial. You know how they give you, like, a probationary period yeah. on job. Uh-huh. He was terminated after his six months for misconduct. And not much is really known about what type of misconduct it was other than the fact it was done. After he was let go from his job, he and his wife moved to Arizona, out in the Tucson area. We don't really know for sure uh, what the hostage situation really had to do with because there was obviously some severe mental uh, disorder, mental illness going on with with David. He and his wife had some ties to some white supremacy groups and stuff apparently out in in, uh, Arizona. And it was out there where he perfected the type of bomb that he would be using uh, on the school or trying to attempt to use on the school. These types of bombs, try to explain it the best I can, it was a two-part system. He had tuna cans that had shrapnel and blasting caps in them. Mm-hmm. That These blasting caps would blow aluminum powder up into the air. So just think about that like a dust storm. Mm-hmm. And then on a delay uh, of a second or two, the gas bomb would then go off, the one we made with homemade gasoline, and that fireball would catch all that aluminum dust on fire. Right. right. And would basically, the air in the whole area would be on fire. Mm-hmm. And that was the intention. Yeah, because they had they had tried to do it a couple times to perfect it. Um, they had blown up a bus out in the mm-hmm. desert somewhere, and it worked perfectly. Yeah, he'd worked on this for seven years yeah. and had never failed. Right. It had always worked exactly the way he wanted it to. Yeah, and he had also, I don't know if I'm skipping ahead in the story, but like he had a couple of guys that was he wanted to help. Yeah, you're skipping ahead. Sorry. I'll go. We're get, we'll get to that part. Okay, fine. So he meticulously planned to come back to Cokeville and go to the elementary school. Now, this is crazy because the reason was he felt that these he could these kids were really smart. Mm-hmm. They had very um, smart. Like the I, the the testing levels at this school, the scores were unbelievably high, and he felt like that these group of extremely smart students, he could kill them, they would be reincarnated with him, and then mm-hmm. he could reign over top of them. Yes. That's so I mean that shows you his mentality right there. So the plan was to go get rich first of all. I don't I don't see this is where you're gonna see it's gonna sound like holes in the story, but it really was how um crazy that his scheme was. His plan was, first of all, to blow up the school and all the people and reign over them. But his other plan was to get rich by charging $2 million per child ransom. Mm-hmm. And he was prepared to stay there for 10 days because mm-hmm. he thought Congress might take that long to be able to come up with the money. Right. So I don't know what he thought he was going to do with his money if he was going to be killing them and killing himself. So it's like, how do you do both? No, yeah. But that was, yeah. like I said, that was his mentality. He... Uh, had gotten some money from a couple of investors, a couple of guys, mm-hmm. and they weren't really sure what his plans were. No, they had no idea, actually. They had no idea. 
And they just trusted him because this guy was like extremely smart back yes, in the day. He and, was. and they trusted him to be able to uh, come up with some genius type plan. So that's what they just did. And like I said, they didn't they didn't realize that he was gonna be taken school hostage or any of that stuff. So what ended up happening is these guys came, I guess, from Arizona and they met him in Cokeville and he kind of told him, hey, this is uh, somewhat the plan. He loads everything up. He gets the, the two gentlemen and his daughter, Penny, and they all load up in the van and they head out towards the school. Now, there's a movie that I would encourage everybody to watch called The Cokeville Miracle that follows closely along with this. Now, the only thing about the movie that was a little bit different is as far as the gentleman is, they supposedly, according to the actual stuff, they made it to the school then they found out that he was planning on going inside to blow up the school. Yes. And when they, they found it out, they didn't want to be a part of it. So then he handcuffed them to the van mm-hmm. so they couldn't go in. His daughter came inside with him, carrying, you know, helping him carry some of the ammunition oh, but, yeah, and stuff. Guns and she and stuff. was she was like 18 years old. Mm-hmm. So she was an, an older girl, but she didn't know. And she still knew. Once she knew, she still was kind of going along with it until she got in and saw the children. And saw, and, and it just made sense to her that she couldn't do this. So she no further heard him take the first hostage of uh, Christine Cook and decided this wouldn't for her. And she left. And the guys, of course, were still in the van and they drove to the nearest police station. And basically. Well, the girl did. Yeah. yeah they drove to the nearest. And it's just really weird because their relationship was weird. Um, and then, what's her name? Dorothy? Doris. I mean, Doris, like she, she would go along with him, but he would be like dominating over her. Yeah, like, he was very controlling. Oh, very controlling. And it was basically just shut up and do what I tell you. Do. Exactly. She, and she exactly. And it. she would just do it because she thought he was an absolute genius. Right. So the girl leaves, Penny leaves, the daughter leaves. And as she is driving, trying to find a police station with these two guys handcuffed in the van, we're back to the school now. And David tells Christine Cook that they're taking the school hostage, like I said. And then he tells them that tells her that, that bomb that he's got is powerful enough to flatten the entire building. Yep. His ransom demand equaled up to three hundred million dollars. They mentioned two hundred in the movie, but it's three hundred million. So the Youngs took Christine Cook to the first grade room by gunpoint. They rounded up all 135 students and 18 faculty members into one room. And they did this by Doris going basically to each room with a big smile on her face and saying, hey, there's an assembly in the first grade room, which is room four. Right. We got a surprise for you. Yeah, we got a surprise for you. Well, the teachers were kind of surprised in their own right because they knew that there was no assembly plan for mm-hmm, that day. Mm-hmm. So, but they just went ahead and, and followed anyway. So the teacher had the kids all in this room. This is a room that was designed to hold 30 students and one teacher. Yep. And there's 154 people in it. Yeah. Well, 154 hostages and the two of them. Yes. They've got this bomb. It's a it's gasoline. And it's in a milk jug. Mm-hmm. He got the milk jug from a dump. Yes, on, the way on their in. way there. 
and apparently it had a leak in the bottom and it was starting to leak uh, on it had top. a hole in the bottom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's still leaking the bottom. Well, yeah, true. From the hole. But it, it was a, a, a drip leak. Yes. And it was dripping on top of the aluminum powder mm-hmm. that was going to eventually blow into the air. As David's sitting there, the kids start to get a little antsy. As you can imagine, these are elementary school kids. They're starting to panic a little bit. Some are starting to get sick to their stomach because that bomb that was leaking gas was putting fumes off into the air. Yeah. You can imagine how that would be. Oh, God, yeah. It's a horrible smell. So the younger kids started to get a little bit rowdy. And one of the, at least in the in the movie, it says one of the teachers suggested this, but from all the uh, research I did, it said that, that David Young himself suggested, because he didn't want the kids near him, mm-hmm. he was going to mark off a square mm-hmm. onto the uh, the ground with tape. And he told the kids they were going to play a game that nobody was going to step, step inside. inside that square. Or he was going to let the bomb off. Now this bomb, <laughs> this is about as homemade as it gets. So it's a shopping cart with a bucket basically of the aluminum powder. The gas is in a milk jug sitting on top of that. And he has clothespins wooden clothespins mm-hmm. set and that is tied with a shoelace that's tied to his wrist if he pulls his wrist far enough and that shoelace comes off that set off the bomb that's how crude this thing was put together he set up in the middle of the room the kids are still you know kind of going a little bit crazy mm-hmm. they're getting antsy like I said and He's starting to really panic. As he's panicking, he's starting to sweat like crazy. That's yeah. what everybody's starting to notice. But then the other teacher come and said, you know, hey, the kids are throwing up. They're getting sick. And you know how kids get when they get sick. He said, can we at least open the windows and let some air in so the, you know, fresh air in so the kids may not get sick. And he agreed to that. He said, yes, go ahead and open the windows. But no funny business. Yeah. The other thing they did was where the bathrooms were, instead of closing the doors, they left the doors open. Yes. And they just put some, like, tables and stuff yeah, there. Yeah, kind of like a barricade little barricade. It. Yeah. And that doesn't seem like it would make do, do much, but it makes a lot of sense in the end uh, when you hear how it contributes. So, like I said, David was becoming more erratic, but at the same time, for whatever reason, the children started to become strangely more calm. Hours after the ordeal had started, this thing lasted about two hours, Mm -hmm. a heavily sweating David Young took the shoelace off his wrist and carefully put it on his wife's doris wrist. He then said, I'm going to go to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. Just be calm. So while David was away, Doris was talking to the children, but she was pretty fanatically waving her hands well because the, the remember the elderly teacher had said why are you doing this i can tell like don't you have kids and was kind of talking to her remember and she was like talking back with her and then she told her to go go and sit down but as she was doing that that's when she kind of forgot what she was doing and started waving her hands right well when she moved her hand too far this caused the bomb to go explode and go off 
As the bomb exploded, there was a blackness in the air and Doris Young was on fire. David came running out of the bathroom and he sees Doris on fire and he pulls out his gun and shoots her. There was flames everywhere in the building. Kids and teachers were scrambling to get out. David Young then shoots John Miller, who was uh, the teacher that was actually helping kids to get yeah. out. Wasn't he, he was, the music teacher or something? I believe he was the music teacher. And he was able to still get a couple of kids out before he collapsed outside on the lawn. Yes. John laid on the ground with a bullet just two inches from his spine. They said if it had been two inches over, he'd either have been paralyzed or dead. Wow, how lucky is he? So then, David then turns the gun on himself and pulls the trigger. Now, Rich Haskell, he was a bomb technician. He was in a nearby city, and he got a call shortly after the hostage situation started telling him that he needed to call dispatch immediately. When he got a hold of dispatch, they told him about the situation and said they needed his assistance up in Lincoln County, so he headed that way. But as he got close, he could hear over the uh, radio that the bomb had went off. Yeah. So Rich Haskell, knowing how big this bomb was and that there were 154 people crammed into one room, expected to arrive at the scene and see several casualties laying all over the place. He was extremely relieved and surprised when he did not find that when he arrived on the scene. As it turns out, not a single person in that school died other than the two people who took the hostages, David and Doris Young. Isn't that amazing? Haskell said that he could not explain how a bomb of that magnitude could go off with that many people around it and not kill anyone, especially when the walls were riddled with shrapnel. Because mm-hmm. keep in mind, all this ammunition was in there. Oh, yeah. From I mean, I'm talking, you know, big ammunition, tons yeah. of bullets. And Ammu- stuff. Am- I mean, ammo for the guns, everything. Yes. So as the bomb went off and everything was in flame, all these bullets started going off. Oh, so God, the bullets yeah. were going off and ricocheting. And they were all over the entire walls, but yet none, none of them hit. hit a student or so a teacher. That is so amazing. So the question is, was this divine intervention? Just the fact that the hostages were killed and no one else were killed could be called a miracle on its own right. But there's more to consider. Everything that we've talked about up to this point could be called coincidence. Be hard to consider it all a coincidence, but even still. Now, Ron Hartley, he was the lead investigator of the case for the uh, Lincoln County Sheriff's Department. He met Rich Haskell at the scene. Haskell looked at Hartley and he said, what you've got here is a miracle. It looks like the bomb went straight up and I can't explain that. This bomb should have leveled the entire building. Mm-hmm. In the days following the explosion, a few other things came to light. Investigators discovered that three wires to the bomb's blasting caps had been cut, preventing a complete uh, detonation. So they literally were cut like with scissors. Right. So why would, you know, why would he do that? Right. So the bomb had five tuna cans that each had blasting caps. Three of the lines were cut, so only two of the blasting caps off. went off. Also, in each one of the, uh, was the explosive powder that was supposed to fly in the air. Remember we talked about the gasoline w- was on a delay, uh, so it would blow up a little bit later. Mm-hmm. But it was leaking onto that powder. Yes. So what happens when water mixes with a powder? It, it's not powder anymore. No. It's like sludge. sludge. So that actually kept 
because of that leaking on there, that kept that powder from blowing up in the air yes. like it should have. So that's, you know, once again, pretty cool. So now you've got that and you've got three cut wires, which really pretty good. So David might have been mentally unstable, but he was extremely smart and he knew how to make these bombs. Like I said, he had been practicing for years and it seems strange that he would somehow make a mis these many mistakes on this bomb, such as the leaky gas, the cutting mm -hmm. the wires, all that. So regardless, if you want to chalk all this up to coincidence, so be it, it'd be a little harder to explain the next part. So we mentioned earlier that David's uh, young started to get really anxious, right? And then the children started to become extremely calm, which was odd. Could there be an angelic reason for their calmness? In the days to come, stories from several children started to surface. Stories that were strange, but very similar to each other. Because they all decided to pray all together, remember? Mm -hmm. All of them. All yep. got in a circle and started praying. Yeah, they all started praying at the same time before the bomb went off. Uh, Glenna Walker, her daughter Katie, she told her mom uh, as she was outside laying on the ground right after the explosion, she said, Mom, the angels saved us. So Katie said that while she was in the room, an older woman was, she was coloring, right? Mm -hmm. And she looked up, and this older woman was standing next to her. And she said, listen to your brother, and you will be okay. Mm -hmm. And she said she put her head down to color again and looked back up, and then the, the lady was gone. Well, her brother came over a few seconds later, and he said, go wait by the window, and you will be okay. Well, her brother starts walking back to the other side of the room, and by the time he got to the other side of the room, the bomb had went off. Approximately eight months later, after this explosion, KD comes across a locket of her mom's. And she opens the locket, and there's a picture of Katie's grandma. Now, Katie's grandmother had passed away when her mom was just 15 years old. Her mom didn't have very many pictures of yeah. her, but this was one of them. So Katie hadn't seen any pictures of her. Mm -hmm. She didn't have a bunch of pictures, period. So Katie hadn't seen any until she ran across this locket. And when she saw this, she says, that's her. That's the lady who helped me. That's the lady that was there when I was coloring. Katie's mom knew that that had to have been her mother coming to help her granddaughter, even though they had never met. Oh, my goodness. How but Katie's, wonderful. Katie's story wasn't the only one like that. Ron Hartley, who was the investigator we spoke of a little bit earlier, he had a son, Jason. Now, Jason had a similar story with even more details. Hartley, though, was very skeptical, and he was really concerned about his son running around town saying that he had seen angels. I mean, he was the lead investigator, and he's, you know, the police officer in town and all that. He, well, just, I mean, wants, he I mean, just wants to make sure that, you know. Yeah, of course, and I'm, I'm sure a bunch of those kids were kind of hesitant to even bring that up because they probably were like, well, who would believe us? Right. So he decided to use some police technology and training to see if his son was being truthful. Nathan said that he was sitting there and these angels came down from the ceiling. One approached him and said, Jason, you're great, I'm your great grandmother. What David and Doris are doing are completely wrong and the bomb is going to go off. Gosh, oh, I can't even imagine those poor kids. Now, 
Hartley said that you learn in, in police interrogating and stuff like that how to tell when somebody's lying. You can tell by their body, body you know, manners and, right. and all that stuff. And he said he could tell his son was not lying. Mm-hmm. So then they start deciding that he wants to flip through a photo album and see, you know, he's got two great-grandmothers, this could be, which one is it? And he looks up, and he looks at both pictures, and Jason says, this right here, she's it. And it was Grandma Elliot. Mm -hmm. That's the one who had came and helped out. Well, Hartley obviously wants to believe his son. And he tells Jason, he's like, why didn't you tell us this before? And Jason said, Dad, you wouldn't have believed me. Yeah. This is kind of kind of cool, and I, I need to find this picture and actually put it up so everybody can see it. <clears throat> but there's a picture that was from a video that was taken as the investigation was going on right after the bombing. There's this very large, strange humanoid-like burn mark on one of the walls. It looks like it has wings mm-hmm. or something like that. This burn mark is where several students say that they saw angels standing when the bomb went off. Several of the children reported beams of light surrounding Doris right before the bomb went off. And when it did go off, it was like a bolt of lightning that shot through the ceiling. Mm-hmm. So several kids all making this same yeah, claim. right. They said she had said that this shielded them from the blast, which fit perfect with the bomb expert saying that the bomb went straight up and he couldn't explain it. So let's play devil's advocate here. This is a very small town, and it's made primarily of uh, members of the Church of the Latter-day Saint mm-hmm. or Mormons, but they would prefer to be called Latter-day Saints. Mm-hmm. This particular city, town, I guess what you say, is a lot more religious than most towns in America. Over 60% of the population regularly go to church services. Some would say it's because that these children all attend church on a regular basis that they may be programmed to see things like angels, especially at a time of crisis. Others will say that the beams of light that the kids saw weren't really angels, they were just a light from the bomb blast. Okay, so I got that. That would make sense. But the problem here is that most of the children said that the angels were in the room way before the blast ever happened, which is why the kids were in a, uh, I guess, a state of more peace and calm. They felt like the angels were there. So I want to go back to some of the children's accounts. Jenny Sorensen Johnson, she was in the first grade at the time, she said that she had a teacher that she didn't know help her out of the classroom. This teacher didn't say anything to her, but Jenny trusted and followed her out of the building. She turned around to go back to get a shoe that had fallen off, but the teacher made her keep going forward. Jenny continued to to go out, and she continued to uh, eventually go back to school again when it opened at, at Cokeville Elementary. But she couldn't find that teacher. She wanted to thank her. She never did see that teacher. She hadn't seen her before, didn't see her after. About four years later, when Jenny was 12, she finally learned the identity of the woman. She was looking at a family photo album with her grandma, and she ran across the woman who 
in the in the album. She asked her grandma. She said, "What grade did this woman teach, and why did she quit after the bombing?" This was her grandma's aunt Ruth. <laughs> grandma said that she was never a teacher, and uh, she wasn't even from Cokesville. Jenny told her grandmother that this was the lady who was all in white and actually led her out of wow. the building. Grandma tearfully said that couldn't be because she died about three years earlier before the bombing had taken place. That gives me chills. Here's another unique thing that happened in uh, conjunction with the bombing that I thought was a really cool story. Amy Williams was severely burned in the explosion and she'd said she didn't see an angel, but she felt a calmness as she was starting to pray. She said a calmness just came over her. She suffered third-degree burns over most of her body. Her hair and her eyelashes were completely burned off. Her face was unrecognizable. Oh, my gosh. She remembers that the nurses were crying as they cleaned her wounds. And that the doctors were talking to her parents about skin grafts and doing plastic surgery. A priest showed up, and uh, he asked if it was okay to give her a blessing, and she said yes. She said she felt peace, and she heard a voice telling her that all of her scars would be healed, and that no one would look upon her face and know what happened. Mm. Instead, the scars that would have to be healed, that she would have to be healed from, would be forgiveness and trust. Oh. William's skin began to heal at a rapid pace, and despite the severe burns, no scar tissue formed. Over time, her skin healed completely perfect and today she has absolutely no scars at all from the incident. Yay! That's awesome! So we mentioned Hartley used some police techniques and stuff on his son and told you a little bit about that a while ago when his son Jason said that he picked out his grandma from the pictures, right? But I might have left out the most important part. I mean, the bomb exploded upwards, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And they couldn't explain that. Well... Jason told his dad that there were angels for every single person in that room. And just prior to the bomb going off, the angels all went towards the bomb and they all held hands around the bomb. And when it went off, they all went up through the ceiling with the explosion. Oh, God. Officer Hartley, who once doubted his son, said the fact that what he said lined up with the evidence of the bomb going upwards and not being able to be explained and that he picked his grandma Elliot's picture out to him was all the evidence that he needed and he couldn't deny that he felt this was divine intervention. Such a miracle. Isn't that, isn't that just wonderful? So, yeah. That could have been so... I mean, just... I can't even imagine how horrible that would have been. And we touched on some of the stories. There's a bunch more stories out there. Uh-huh. And in the movie... Uh, when you go to watch it, the movie's pretty close to accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a couple of things different. Like I was telling Tracy, you know, they they say that the girl, the way they display the the one young lady finding the locket, mm-hmm. uh, is like it was pretty close to immediate. But that was really like months later. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with a couple other things. It was you know four years later for one. And but they other than that, I mean, everything's pretty much lines up. Yes. Pretty close. And and some of the victims that were some of the hostages, the children of hostages, actually play in the movie. Oh, as I know. One of them plays as one of the girls' guardian angels. And, Isn't that incredible? Because 
I can't imagine having to do that. They are so brave. And it shows you at the end, it shows you like some of the pictures of the kids. When they then, were little and, and they now. Like now with their family. And that's and, what I told Jerry. I said, if you watch these pictures of them then and now, every single one of those families had like five or six kids. Every one of them. Yeah. But like, it's, like I was telling here, you know, they're from the Church of Latter-day Saints and... A lot, well, a lot of the uh, a lot of the Mormons do have big families. I I I was very relieved and happy to hear because I totally believe every bit of it. I totally believe every single thing that those angels were there to protect them, and that is is your loved ones. And I, t- I don't know, it just really gives you such. And a that great was feeling. the thing, and, and all these angels, they were loved ones. They were yes. relatives of some yeah. sort. Yeah, it's just what a miracle. Because that could have been a, a that could have been so terrible. I mean, it's like that guy said he knew he was just going to walk in and just see all these little bodies laying everywhere, and it was just the total opposite. So, so that's yeah. a good story, man. I love it. I thought it was a cool story. I'm sorry they had to go through that, of course, but the ending was just wonderful. All right, so let's take a quick break from our sponsor, then Tracy will be back to tell us uh, a couple of things, some housekeeping, and then we'll listen to Carrie's interview. So it's a really cool interview. All right, Tracy, before we get into the iTunes reviews and the Patreon, I wanted to uh, say thank you for everybody who has left a review for the book on Amazon. That really helps, and I appreciate it, and I get to read them, and it's really cool. And I had a couple of people write me this week saying that they've read the book, and it touched them, and I just really appreciate that. So that was the intention when I wrote it, and I'm glad that, uh, that people are getting something out of it. Yeah, that was so nice. Those those comments and just re- really totally mean the world to Jerry and to I, and, and just thank you guys so much for you know supporting him in that endeavor right and like i said if you haven't left a review yet on amazon if you could do that that would be awesome Mm -hmm. i would appreciate that that would be really wonderful all right other than that tracy okay our itunes reviews comes from crazed cruise guy mojo lobster of course courtney miller 13 and lottie b thank you guys so much for your reviews we appreciate it more than you'll ever ever know Um, And then our Patreons this week was from Tracy O'Connor, Allison Henson, and Mickey Stoddard. Thank you, guys. That is so wonderful that you are supporting us. Um, It means the world to us. You all just don't have any idea. So it makes us happy and want to do what we do every week. And um, I know you all thank us for everything that we do, but you all don't really, I hope you realize how much you guys mean to us and what you do for us as well. Yep, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. One last thing before we listen to Carrie. Uh, Tim Mullins and uh, Tracy and I have collaborated to create Hillbilly Dead Time Stories. That is going to be a new episode starting January 6th. It'll be weekly. And it will also be a video series, which we put a sneak peek out on uh, the Hillbilly Horror Story page and on my personal page to kind of show you uh, how it's going to look. It's really something we're excited about and uh, we're having fun with it. Go to Hillbilly Dead Time Stories on YouTube and subscribe. So I think I'll ask you to do. Yeah, I'm very proud of that for you guys. Um, you, you and Tim have really done a great job so far. So kudos to you all. Yeah, these will be about 15-minute stories for the mm-hmm. most part uh, or less. So they won't be really long, but it'll be video and audio. So we'll put it out on the podcast as audio. But you won't have to see the video. It'll it'll be make perfect sense. But we'll have a video to go along because what happens is 
the reality are there's a lot of people who love podcasts but don't like videos, but there's also people who like videos mm -hmm. and don't like podcasts. So this mm -hmm. gives us a chance to get into two different awesome. uh, genres, platforms, I should say. <laughs> All right, let's listen to Carrie. Hey, guys, I got a friend of ours on the phone, Carrie from Louisville. And Carrie, we talk about this is actually the reason that we started doing live events. The very first live event we ever did was at a uh, an annual event that they do at the Talbot Tavern in Bardstown, Kentucky. And we uh, were decided, hey, we were when we were invited to be a special guest, which was an honor for us, and we got to do, uh, I remember it was the Loretta Lynn Plantation, and that was the first mm -hmm. live event we have ever done. So that kicked off everything about three years ago, and we go back every year for this event and uh, just have some fun and hang out and spend the night at the Talbot Tavern. So, Carrie, thanks for having us at those events, and uh, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, you're very welcome, and we're honored to have you there. We have so much fun. Yeah, that is a, it is a fun event. Like I said, you guys have been doing this for, what, like 11, 12 years? Yeah, about 12 years. Uh-huh. Awesome. And yeah, what is the deal with Bardstown? I mean, Bardstown's got... You know, it was voted the most beautiful city in America, small town city in America, a few years back. And it is absolutely gorgeous. It's a fun place. Of course, that's where most of the world's bourbon comes from. And But you guys have got out there mysterious uh, circumstances surrounding missing persons, murders, uh, ghosts of like the Talbot Tavern and then the, the jailer's inn next to it. There's a lot going on mm -hmm. for that small town. It, there really is. Well, it's one of the, the oldest towns in Kentucky, you know, so there's got to be a lot of activity somewhere. And with all the great bourbons and stuff, there's a lot of limestone. So I've heard that spirits are drawn to that limestone. Yeah, I believe that's probably the case. And that limestone is what makes the bourbon so special. That That is why yes. Kentucky bourbon is what it is, is because of the limestone water. So, yes. How about that? So you've got you've got a story that you specifically picked out. You've got tons and tons of experiences. We've talked so many times about some of the experiences you've had. Even right there at Talbot and Jailer's Inn, we were discussing uh, this past Halloween when we were there. But you've got one picked out for us that you said stands out amongst most of your other stories. So I'm just going to turn it over to you and let you tell us. Okay, this happened to me when I was around ten years old. Um, I had, well, it's got a little backstory. My mother as a child had lost contact with her step grandmother. She dearly loved this woman. And it was rumored that she had moved to Indiana. Nobody actually really knew where she went. Well, years later, after I was born until I was about 10 years old, my other, my father's mother and brother bought a house in Nepal, Indiana. When they bought that house, they found a Winnie the Pooh book that had the had names in it that had the last name of the grandmother that my mother had been searching for. So the book actually tied into it also found where her lost relatives went. But the book that they had gave me, it, like I said, it was a Winnie the Pooh book and it was beautiful. It looked like it was brand new. It was one of the first published Winnie the Pooh books. I fell in love with it when I saw it. And, of course, my uncle and grandmother said, take it home. 
Well, that I did, and I took it home, and as a child, you know, we always play, role play on what we would like to do, and I always wanted to be a secretary for some reason, mm-hmm. and I had my little desk set up, and I put my book on this little desk that I had set up. I had my cousin spend the night with me. We were all giggly until real late in the middle of the night, and we finally fell asleep. Well, we woke up to a whole bunch of knocking. It was... It was enough noise to wake both of us up. We woke up, and the book itself was flopping around on my desk, flipping pages, just, I mean, all kinds of things. And as a kid, you know, it scares the bejeebies out of you, so all we did was cover our heads up and waited till the knocking stopped before we went back to sleep. And when we woke up in the, the next morning, that beautiful book had turned yellow, the binding was all ripped and torn, there was torn pages, and it looked its age. Um, I don't know what might have happened with what could have been inside of the book, but we took the book to my mother, and she threw it away. She didn't burn it or anything like that, but she did throw it away. It did not come back to us or anything, but that was my very first um experience with possession wow that's i don't think i've ever heard a story like that as far as like having a book that looks a certain way and then all of a sudden goes back and ages itself to where it should be that's that's a unique story it was really creepy it was so and i'm not sure if it could have been the cause of the rest of my childhood experiences either you know, I've never counted that out, but that was my first experience with possession. Everybody always thinks of possession as being with people and not so much as objects, that objects very well can be possessed. Yeah, I, I 100% agree. Or, that. You go and you hear yeah. a lot about haunted dolls and stuff like that. And then, of course, you got the different right. boxes and stuff like that. So, I mean, that's that all kind of ties in with haunted objects. Right. And I feel like it came from that house, whatever was in that house, because the the family that I spoke about, there was also a family photo in that house. And my uncle kept throwing it away and we would find it. The children would find it. All of the cousins would find it. Hey, who are, who's this? This is neat. He's like, well, I threw that away several months ago. You know, we all got the same answer because he kept throwing his picture away and it kept coming back to the house. Hmm. That's scary on its own, right? That's creepy, isn't it? Yeah. Uh-huh. Carrie, tell me, tell me one of your favorite stories from the Talbot or the Jailer's Inn that you uh, from one of your experiences over there. I know you've had several. Oh wow! Um, I think my favorite. We were staying at the Talbot. Me and a friend of mine was staying at the Talbot. My brother and two of his friends were staying at the Jailer's Inn. And we both had experiences that day. My friend and I heard two men speaking in our room. It was the uh, general's quarters. And you could clearly hear two men speaking. And it was about 3.30 in the morning. And my friend tried to say, oh, it was just somebody out on the street. Well, Jerry, you've been to Bargetown. You know they roll the streets up at midnight. (laughs) So those voices were definitely coming from our room. The next morning, I found out that my brother and his friends heard somebody crying at the, the jail door on the room that they were staying at. And the room that they were staying at was where they used to house the prisoners before they 
was uh, hung. <laughs> so they heard somebody just weeping and crying and just, um, but they wouldn't open the door. It scared them because, again, it was so early in the morning, they knew that nobody was probably out there. But that was uh, an odd experience that both of us had at separate places on the same night. What experiences have you had uh, in the cemetery behind there? The only experience that I've had at the cemetery was um, by the schoolhouse. And we had asked one year, is anybody here? And it picked up on a recording, I am. <laughs> so they never, we never got any further. We didn't pick up any more voices, but we did get that voice. So let me ask you a question. You're kind of a historian when it comes to Bardstown and, and specifically mm -hmm. that area. What is the reason for in Pioneer Cemetery back there for all the above ground crypts and tombs? Because, I mean, usually I'm used to seeing that in areas where the sea level is really low. What is the reason I, for the above ground tombs and crypts back there? Well, through my studies, I had found out that those were just to deter people from robbing a grave. They would bury their loved ones, and then they would put the crypts on top because all of the crypts are empty. Right. But it would deter them from being able to rob a grave. Those stones are so very heavy that they would not want to move them just to see what was in the grave below. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And so they're, so they're actually buried underground, and those are put on top just as a deterrent. Right. Okay. Well, that makes sense because you can see a lot of them are busted up, and you can see down into it that there's nothing there so i just didn't know if they'd removed the casket i never even thought about the fact that that could just be something above ground to you know put on top i have seen before you know now that you said it now this makes sense i've seen in other cemeteries to where they'll have the grave and then they'll have like a concrete slab just you know right over top of the grave and i guess that was the same reason to keep people from just moving the slab and get right. underneath of it huh right mm -hmm. so i never made that connection until now i guess that makes sense Mm-hmm. Carrie, it's, yeah. been, it's been fun talking to you. I'm glad we got to catch up. We should have done this a long time ago. Right. Well, I wish that you have a wonderful day, and thank you for inviting me to tell my little stories. And uh, if you need anything else, I will definitely be available. I'll definitely hook up with you again because I know you've got a bunch of stories. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> All right, Carrie, thank you so much. Thanks, Jerry. So that was Carrie. She's She's got so many stories. Because we sit out on the deck of the old Talbot Tavern, which is cool because it's always Halloween time. Mm -hmm. It's always cool outside. Yeah. And then we're in a <clears throat> haunted location. Yes. Sitting out there talking about all these ghost stories and stuff that have happened there or next door mm -hmm. or not. So it's really cool. So. Yeah. And it's, almost, it's always so much fun to do that with them. And we love you, honey. All right, guys. Thank you so much. And we will see you next week. Bye, guys.